Welcome to the Voices of Brahmaputra, a podcast where we bring diverse stories from the basin, depicting the local community's association with the river from a socio-cultural perspective. I am your host, Anamika Barwa, a professor in the Department of Humanities and Social Sciences, Indian Institute of Technology, Guwahati, India. Today we will be talking about history of the Brahmaputra, river without boundaries, with our special guests, Professor Ainun Nishat and Professor Arup Jyoti Saikya. So let's get started. The Brahmaputra River Basin originates in the Himalayan mountain range in Tibet. It is a transboundary water body that flows across four countries. It is known as Yalong Sangpo in China, Siang, Brahmaputra and Lohit in India, and Jamuna in Bangladesh. In Bhutan, three of its main tributaries originate, thus making it a major contributor to the river. These four countries sharing the basin are in various stages of development with huge numbers of the population dependent on the river as it is often seen as a source of socio-economic development. As such, much of the narrative around the river is about contestation, but there are also stories of hope, friendship and symbiotic relationships between people and the river, which we would like to bring to light through this podcast. Speaking of our guests, today on the show, we are excited to have Professor Ainun Nishat, Professor Emeritus Center for Climate Change and Environmental Research, Brak University in Bangladesh, and Professor Arup Jiti Saikya, Professor in the Department of Humanities and Social Sciences, Indian Institute of Technology, Guwahati, India. Owing to their years of association with the Brahmaputra, they are going to share their expertise on the basin. In this session, we will endeavor to look at the river basin as a whole, beyond the administrative boundaries, and the way the relationship between the river and the riverine communities has evolved for centuries. Hello, Professor Nishad and Professor Saikya. Welcome to the Voices of Brahmaputra. Professor Nishad, my first question is to you. Can you give a historical overview of the river, how it evolved and impacted the communities living across the basin, irrespective of the administrative boundaries? Thank you, Anamika. This is a very interesting question because Brahmaputra is a very unique river in the world because it is still evolving. It is flowing from China in the Tibetan plateau and comes to the border of India in Arunachal, moving from west to easterly direction in the Tibetan plateau and then drops about say 4,000 meter, where it is known as Siang. Before that, it is known as Yarlang Sangpo. And this 4,000 meter drop is a very unique geological characteristics. Then flows to Arunachal, Assam, just in the opposite direction that is towards west, and then moves when it comes to Bangladesh border in a southerly 
direction before it meets the Ganges inside Bangladesh at a place called Arichal. And in the process, it is, I think, around 3,300 kilometer long, but it originates about 5,300 meter above sea level. Now, what is interesting is this present course from where it enters into Bangladesh and then maybe around 100 kilometer to a place called Bahadurabad, where now I will use the word it splits up into two rivers. The old course of Brahmaputra was moving towards east. It circumvents the Madhupur track before it meets the Meghna River. Meghna is the combined flow of Shurma and Kushiara. And Shurma Kushiara was created by bifurcation of the Borak River. Uh, so, so this is based on ge geologically. But point is, maybe it was created anything between 40 to 50 million years ago uh, due to tectonic activity when the Indian plate uh, collided with other tectonic plates and the, in the Tibetan plateau. And this river was born, flowing from somewhere up in the Himalaya. Incidentally, as the Himalaya is rising, the Brahmaputra was taking shape. But as I said, it is flowing through a very tectonically active area. Lot of avulsion type of activities have taken place. If you see Reynolds map, a very reliable map of uh, Bangladesh part that was done by a very young British surveyor. He worked between 1764 and 1777. Right now, say maybe around 250 plus years old survey work. The maps are very accurate. We can find the names of the places compared with the Reynolds map. We can see in those days, Brahmaputra used to flow through the course, which any listener will find in a map called the old Brahmaputra course. Uh, possibly the tectonic activity, the earthquake of 1787 was the trigger along with the tilting of the Madhupur track, the Brahmaputra changed the old course and started moving through the current course. It didn't happen in one day. So geologically, rivers all over the world are as old as of the land. But in case of Brahmaputra, possibly is as old as the land in the Tibetan part and the northern Assam. But inside Bangladesh, it was only created maybe 200 years back. Having said that, the earthquake of 1950 was the final geological activity when the course, which is now known as Jamuna, has become permanent. And I will just take a couple of seconds to uh, talk about the three major tributaries coming from uh, Bhutan to Bangladesh, Dharulla. Pista and Dutkumar. Dharulla is known as Jaldhaka in India. Dutkumar is known as Torsha or Raidhak in India and Bhutan. Pista is also very mobile river. It changed its course for 500 years. Uh, but the very recently in 1968, it moved towards Bihar. The engineers had put it back to the main course 
500 years back, it used to flow into the Ganges, but now it is a major tributary of the Brahmaputra. Thank you so much, Professor Nishad, for this uh, explanation of this entire course and how history is associated with it. Um, taking from what Professor Nishad said, let me focus a little bit more on the specific communities living around this river and their relationship with the river. For instance, in the context of Assam, a state of India, through which the river flows, I would like to hear from you, Professor Saikya, as you have written several books on the history of Brahmaputra, how has the Brahmaputra been central to the history of Assam or a wider eco-region and what role it has played in uh, shaping a region's environment and economy? Thank you, Anamika, for bringing me into this very interesting conversation. We have already heard about the great geological journey of the river. You are absolutely right that one can hardly merge in Assam and its larger neighborhood without this Georges River. Can we think of Indian history without the Indian Ocean, Bay of Bengal, or the Arabian Sea, or the Himalayas? The river is Assam's spine and the backbone of the region's ecological city, and there is no doubt about that. The river and its tributaries, the floods, had for long produced an environment and a landscape. I think one needs to understand how powerful the river, its billion tons of sands, waters, and their velocities, and all of their deep geological histories carved the reasons and its very extended areas, each and every pattern of the environment. So is the collective will of Assam's residents which always remains surprised by the river. Unlike the Ganga, the river's fickle-minded courses never allowed the rise of any major towns, for instance, except probably Gauhati and Tespur, to emerge on the bank of the river. The geological fissures of the river near these two towns are the backbone for this town's vitality, their economic and environmental prosperity. Again, despite this overwhelming nature of the river, the fishermen, the farmers, the graziers, the cattle herders, the boatmen, and many others, and later on joined by the administrators, the tea planters, they've all made wonderful friendships with the river and its many, many patterns and the moods. There is definitely a deep cultural bond between the river and its inhabitants of the valley and the hills. The river, however, remained a witness to Assam's political and economic forces for a long period of time. The river and its uh, environment not only played the most important role in shaping the histories of products wide varieties of products, forest, the agricultural products, or other kinds of modern commodities, including the tea and other timber products. The river was in the backbone, but it was the principal highway to connect these products with the global markets. For in the distant past, 
and till into the recent times. However, the disruptions came in the later decades of the 20th century. Follow the river connected products, producers, and consumers across many landscapes. The river is still partially dusty at a much more localized level, not the way it used to do in the earlier period of time. I hope I have partially at least tried to answer your question. Yes, of course, uh, Professor Saikia, you have emphasized on the economic, environmental, and political relevance of this river. Uh, given the multifaceted role this river plays, as, uh, as highlighted by you, I'm actually very curious to understand that while for centuries people's livelihood has been dependent on this river, why it is still called as the river of sorrow and hope? Professor Nishat, if you would like to give us some insight on that. Thank you for a very interesting question. It's true that this river is the main cause of sorrow, that's the main cause of flood in Bangladesh. Over last, um, 60 to 70 years, Bangladesh has built up infrastructure that manages the flood, but still Brahmaputra is a very violent river. As I was describing the historical background, we should remember two more facts. One fact is, as the river flows through an alluvial plain, it does not carry water only. It carries huge amount of sediment, and the flow that is fixed up by natural condition, that is the rainfall in the catchment area. But there has to be a balance between the two. So as the river moved from the Tibetan plateau through the uh, hairpin bend, and it passes through Arunachal, it created its own floodplain, becomes a very wide river, and started getting huge amount of sediment. The river must carry, bring a balance between sediment load and the water discharge. At this comes to Bangladesh through a place called Nonkhawa. It has huge sediment. Now the volume of sediment was estimated 0.6 billion ton to 1.2, 1.5 billion ton earlier. The total sediment load combined between the flow of Ganges and the Brahmaputra, uh, currently it is about so 1 billion ton, of which 0.6 billion tons come from Brahmaputra. Now, on the other hand, the discharge of the Brahmaputra is very, shall I say, skewed. In the monsoon, the flow could be more than 1.5 million cubic feet per second. But in dry season, it becomes hardly one-tenth of that, maybe 100,000 to 140,000 cubic feet per second. So this creates an interesting situation the sediment load. So in the winter months, the dry season, the sediment load is too high for the river to carry, and it gets deposited, forming the huge chores. But in the monsoon month, the discharge is very high, and it needs higher volume of sediment load, and it starts eroding both on the bed and the bank. So the river is highly volatile and eroding on both banks, so river ero bank erosion is a major phenomenon in Bangladesh on the river Brahmaputra. 
Now, hydrologically, we call it Brahmaputra till it meets the Ganges in, in the middle of the country in Aricha. But popularly, it is called the Jomuna from a point called Bahadurabad. Well, it bifurcates, that is the main flow goes southward, the Jomuna course, and the other part goes towards east, which is the old Brahmaputra part. So the river suffers both flood and riverbank erosion and also drought-like condition. And there are a lot of anthropological or social response to this particular issue. So is the flood and riverbank erosion, which is an almost annual phenomenon, but at the same time, Bangladesh was built by the sediment that was carried by the Brahmaputra and the Ganges. So Brahmaputra did contribute to creation of Bangladesh and the flooding also brings in fertility. So which is a source of sorrow and joy for Bangladesh. Very nicely put, Dr. Nishad. While livelihoods are dependent on this river, uh, it also brings a lot of devastating impact to the lives and the livelihood of the basin community. And so I would like to ask Professor Saikya, how does one explain the story of floods, embankments, and ups and downs in Assam's clearly rural prosperity related to this river? I think it is a very important question. In fact, uh, it is very unfortunate that our public narratives have failed to notice the centrality of floods in the making of our a very dynamic agrarian environment. Every year we produce a very painful and very disruptive picture of floods, but we ignore the basics of monsoon, sediments, and histories of making of floodplains. Our present day worries of floods are understandable because of the damages caused to crops, our physical endowments, etc. But it is equally important to write about an essay, uh, which could be a wonderfully titled In Defense of Floods. Floods remain at the center of Assam's long historical rural vitality and prosperity. Its Martians, its others, right? Everyone benefited from, uh, uh, from these stories of floods, not only the plants and the landscape and also the soil. Whether it is the proverbial abundance of feces many lives of plants, which was at the core of prosperity, everything owed to the rhythm of floods. In the late 15th and early 16th centuries, Assam's great Vaishnavite scholar, Hunkardev, wrote how his immediate landscape was close to the river, was full of grains and fish. Even early 20th century Assamese literary writings allude to that similar sense. But since then, as the river and the land's umbilical connections are disrupted by buildings thousands of kilometers of embankments, right? Those vitalities slowed down massively. These embankments were products of immediate political democratic politics. But the consequences of these embankments were huge. And by 1960s and the 1970s, wide range of public opinion, they accepted the failure of the amendments as is as ingrained in the very philosophy of this, the making of the science. 
and technological interventions. Also, as the floodplains became more drier because of these embankments, more human habitations uh, happening was happening closer to the river. But equally, it put their lives and properties at risk. They might have brought some brief relief, but embankments finally dislodged Assam's long-held position as reason full of agricultural vitality. The modern history of Assam's complete failure of agrarian economy partly owes to rise and expansion of these massive mechanical interventions to disclose the stories of flood. In fact, the flood does not hold any more importance in the centrality of the making of floodplain. This is unfortunate. And till we appreciate that story, floods intimate connections in the making of a floodplain, in the making of an agrarian economy, I don't think our understanding of the Brahmaputra as well as the stories of the prosperity uh, that you have said in the question, that will not happen. We will remain far away from the uh, dream of prosperity. We need to bring back this story of Fatman into the centrality of the story. Interesting. Both of you actually mentioned about the flood, erosion, and the perpetual sorrow surrounding the narrative of the river. And I have a question to both of you, and if I can first ask you, Professor Saikya, that the Brahmaputra has eluded human control for centuries, as you have mentioned it uh, rightly. Uh, it is called as the Untamable River. Hence, it is considered as the only male river in the country. I'm talking about India. Why do you think this gendered perspective is used? Historically, has this perception ever had an influence on the decisions made on the river? I appreciate that you had asked this question. I think this is a really important question. The birth of this gendered idea of the river partly owes to the rise of a Sanskrit literary practice around the floodplains of the Brahmaputra over the last uh, two millennia. In fact, non-Sanskrit linguistic cultures and literary tradition, say that of the Tibetan Burman languages, whose proto-histories are increasingly being studied now, generally refrain from ascribing such a gender perspective to the river. The rise of Sanskrit literary practices was witness to the powerful presence of wilderness around this river. This further reinforce such a centered idea. About your basic question that why the river has eluded thus human control, probably there would be many reasons. I would like to highlight at least one of many such reasons. What was probably most crucial were the river's great and enigmatic statistics, some of which Professor Nistat has already said. These were truly of an extraordinary nature, a river which carries billions of tons of sediments and equal level of waters, has innumerable tributaries, is regularly visited by mega earthquakes, 
is flanked by the fragile stormy Himalayas, yearly hosting the fascinating Southwest monsoon and has such complex geomorphological characters is bound to allude to the mathematical formulas produced by the technocrats. But there, are, there also lies the nature of economic and the political systems which have evolved in this region over the centuries. Political and economic structures did not necessitate and mega structures. Such systems did not necessitate mega transformation of the river. However, this did not mean the human and the river did not have companionship. As I told you a little earlier, over the centuries, such a companionship evolved through complex, very complex agricultural system, artisan activities like that of boat making, fishing, gold washing, extraction of sand, uh, many other such kind of things, all of which required a fine understanding of a complex river system, but not the taming of the river. These actions were, or their actions, human actions, and partly also non-human actions, they were all adjusted to the river rhythms of the river or many moods of the river. However, in the 21st century, the river will be asked to serve completely different purpose. Thank you. Uh, Professor Nishad, what is your take on this? Thank you, Anamika. And I appreciate the response given by Professor Saikia. But I approach the problem from a different angle. About the name, I would say names of most of the rivers in the Indian subcontinent have a mythological or, or historical or religious background. So how the river was born as given in mythology or historical background, the names were given. That is how the name Ganges or the Yamuna or Brahmaputra or Bhagirathi, etc., came up. In Bangladesh, we have few more rivers which are male by the characteristics of the name, like Aryal Khan, like Kumar. So I face this question regularly from journalists. Does the, if a river has a male name, does it mean that it is more violent, more energetic? Answer is no. A river can be as energetic with, uh, as um, another river, whether it is named as a female or a male. It is more related to mythology and history and historical connotation and other things. Having said that, about these embankments or how to control the river, we need to have some kind of control. I'm not for complete control over the river's movement. In the alluvial land, you have to give freedom to the river. But how much freedom? Before 1950, the Brahmaputra or the Jamuna, say at a place near Shirazgan, was hardly four kilometer, five kilometer wide. Now it is 15, 16 kilometer wide. As the river is getting widened, it has become more of a braided river from a meandering type river. The huge flow flowing through 15 kilometer width river is created lots of chore lands and where the people have now come and settled in. And every year the chore lands should go underwater and there's flood. 
But having said, I agree with Professor Saikia, we need to pay attention to the ecology and the human interference and create a balance. But for the teeming millions of the people living in the floodplains of Brahmaputra, we have to manage flood in a well-managed way. Thank you very much. It is indeed a very interesting take and, and both of you have highlighted very interesting insight that the name is not, uh, the name does not reflect the nature of the river. It is very closely connected to the history and the mythology. Um, let me uh, ask you the final question. And again, this question is for both of you. And I'm sure you have a lot to share in this regard. Uh, Professor Saikya, uh, what can we learn from the history of this particular river that will be able to inform some of the current issues? What would you add here? Okay, I think, uh, you know, uh, the prediction about the future is obviously not a historian's prerogative, uh, but I may try to get a sense of the Brahmaputra's current predicament. Uh, you know, uh, given the speed at which the water crisis has first uh, caught our attention now, in fact, and there is a rush for to to caught it there, to catch with the river and its water in a very very frantic way. I think that is a question of major worry. But uh, there is little doubt that the waters of the Brahmaputra will now be subject of very intense political rivalries. One can apprehend the rivalries between the upstream dwellers and the downstream dwellers. There needs to be a conversation in the desires of all three nations through which Brahmaputra passed through to make the river more lively and, and, and also the, to develop a story of human companion rather than a an story of intense political rivalry. There is little doubt that India is now a global economic power. So is the story of the modern rise of Bangladesh as an economic entity. This was there actually long before uh, Brahmaputra has actually saved the, the, the enormous power that the Bengal had long before, uh, which actually attracted the European traders. They, its economic aspirations have changed dramatically in the last few decades for India. We all know that China is must ahead in this economic race, and the ecological transformation of the upper stream of the Brahmaputra is going to happen at a very, very faster speed, unlike all the previous time. The 20th century's idea of the river will be shaped by the competing views of these two economic giants as well as this, uh, the enormous tensions, worries from further downstream in Bangladesh. And we have seen the Bangladesh story is also further accented by the happenings of Bay of Bengal, the cyclones, all these things are further will cause trouble. Will the river be able to retain its classic relation with the residents of Assam, Bangladesh, and its larger neighborhood? This is definitely a very important question. While we do not have any ready-made answers yet, it is not too difficult to assume that there will be dramatic changes happening. Thank you, Professor Saikya. Very interesting point you mentioned, conversation between nations. Professor Nishad, what is your take on this and, and what can history teach us? 
I pick up one word from Professor Saikia's statement, which is the word dramatic. Will there be any dramatic change in the course of the river? Answer is yes. If there is a major earthquake, the river may alter its course. I don't know where it will go. Having said that, in your opening statements, you very rightly said, Brahmaputra is an important river and the voice of the people must be heard. And you said, it's a very important transboundary river. The entire basin is shared by four countries, China, India, Bangladesh, and Bhutan. Somehow in Bangladesh, due to political problem, the confusion is more about management of the Ganges and it is on the political agenda. But if I was allowed to advise the governments, I would have said, please pay attention to Brahmaputra and go for effective management of the river and the river basin. Help the people. We have to go for food security, agricultural productivity, manage the flood, allow the flood that is beneficial, manage the sediment load, manage the river's geometry, control the erosion process, people versus ecosystem. We have to create a balance between them. So we have to go for an annual hydrological cycle and manage the river in a decent way. We are friendly neighbors. Bhutan, Bangladesh, and India can sit down together and develop a plan for its joint management, paying attention to ecology, movement of the fish species from Bay of Bengal to the Assam floodplains, pay attention to sediment load, pay attention to welfare of people. And that is what is my take on the Brahmaputra. Let it be a river of peace in coming years through judicious management and through pragmatic approach by the political governments. Make it a river of peace, very nicely put of sunshine. So this brings us to the end of this session. Thank you very much, Professor Saikya and Professor Nishad, for joining this fascinating discussion on the history and evolution of Brahmaputra. We hope it was a valuable session for our listeners, and our listeners will be benefited by these fresh insights. If you enjoyed this session, be sure to come back next week for a discussion on the science of the Brahmaputra, which will again be joined by some of the eminent water experts. Until then, this is Anamika Barua signing off. Mahabahu Brahmaputra Oh